One takeaway for me, why Ludes? Why why Lude, why back then was like Ludes the thing to go to? They're just awesome. I mean, they're so great. I mean, thank God they're illegal. I can't get them. <laughs> they're too good. You know, they're really good. Back then, they were everyone's drug of choice. That is the voice of Jordan Belfort. You might know him from the movie based on his life called Wolf of Wall Street, which starred Leonardo DiCaprio. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. The movie is based on a book by Jordan Belford, which chronicles his rise and fall on Wall Street, being one of the most broy of bro corrupt drug-fueled stockbrokers of all time. And it's a very dark comedy. And the ludes I mentioned up front refers to a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio, who is playing Belfort, has taken a bunch of ludes and is crawling on the ground trying to get to his car. So thus why I asked Jordan Belfort, what's the deal with ludes? Or you might know him from The Boiler Room, another movie based on his life and one of my favorite Vin Diesel movies. And he's our guest today on... Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. I originally interviewed Jordan last year when he was about to have an NFT drop. Do you guys remember NFTs? Remember when that was a thing for like a moment? But he was having an NFT drop, which actually ended up getting pulled because there was controversy. He was working with a British photographer and they were recreating scenes from The Wolf of Wall Street involving real wolves but apparently it became known that the photographer kind of mistreated the wolves allegedly allegedly mistreated the wolves allegedly so they pulled his nft project but the interview gave me time to ask him questions about the history of the wolf of wall street how the movie came about the writing process and also a page in comedy history what was it like to share a jail cell with Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong? That's a moment in comedy history. But before we jump into the episode, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your fine podcasts. And we will read your comments right here on the podcast. Such as this, we got a comment from a Chris Strife on our episode on the history of Andrew Dice Clay controversy, Chris writes, It was an act, not how the guy truly felt. No cultural disrespect. A simple matter of common sense should explain this to all people with a modest level of understanding. Okay, Chris, thank you. Thank you for your comment on the history of Andrew Dice Clay controversy. And now, without further ado... You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Excuse me. Comedy History 101. This call is being recorded. Welcome to Google Meet. Enter the meeting pin followed by the pound key. Thank you. You have joined the call, but you are the only one here. Well, Harmon, how are you, sir? Good, how are you? Is this Jordan? This is Matt. I've got Jordan here. He's just wrapping up a call and he'll be on in one second. Great, thanks. Hello. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good. I've been looking forward to this all day. Uh, thanks for taking time. Sure. My, my, just in general, 
do you like doing interviews or do you more prefer interviewing people? I like being interviewed more than <laughs> I like doing it more than interviewing people because I hate to say it, but usually the people I interview their stories aren't as interesting as my own. <laughs> I think that what happens is it's such a competitive world now with like on podcasting and stuff that you know, a lot of times it's just like it's almost becoming a bad joke and like, hey, you want to go on my podcast? That's it's like, you know, so it gets like harder and harder to find great interviews. I think I'm actually going to start switching to people who aren't famous, but who have amazing yeah. stories. So anyway, but I love being interviewed because I love to talk. Yeah, I just rewatched the movie last night. Did you really say to the FBI, get the fuck off my boat? Or is that uh, no, no, for my movie? He's actually a good friend of mine the agent now. We do a lot of stuff to speak oh, yeah. together. No, no, that, yeah. no, no, that held against the fuck. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, he chased me. We had this really interesting relationship for so many years where he was chasing me around. Not, not physically. I was, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't hiding, but, you know, I was living in Long Island. He was trying so hard to, to, to kind of find some headshot he could get where I did something wrong. And it took him about seven or eight years of that to finally, um, to finally find something. That was smuggling money to Switzerland. That was a mistake. So, um, it's a, a really interesting story. It, and how do you feel like just because it's like so meta because you're recreating a scene from a movie that's recreating a scene from your actual life? Yeah. It's very much of an out of body experience. Even just the one level up is watching the movie. I remember the first time I saw it, trying to find words to describe it, but I couldn't. Oh, yeah, and nothing could have prepared me, you know, no, nothing, you know, no books, <laughs> no other movies, you know, not even um, watching the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko could have prepared me for what I saw. And, you know, no matter how many stories I heard about everyone telling stories about my life, nothing could prepare me for that movie that it was just so profound in so many ways that I lost, it was like it lost my breath watching it. Did, did it feel like you were watching yourself, or did it feel like you were caught up in watching a movie about someone else? No, it feel it felt feel like I was watching myself. Leo did such a good job, and he almost looked like me in the movie. Like he's way he's just such a, he's such a great actor, you know. And I, and especially when he says my name, like he says my name a lot, like about seven or eight times. Like I'm, you know, Jordan Belfort. It's so weird when someone says your name, like and it's not you. It just sounds yeah. Like, Strange. You know, the Scorsese did such a great job. So, you know, it just was an amazing, you know, thought to finish. Yeah, what 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 do you think they left out or uh or how how accurate was it? Was it pretty accurate, like in all the big set pieces we saw in the movie? Yeah, I mean it's, it's, it was some I think the biggest inaccuracies were mm -hmm. were the timeline was somewhat shifted, and that's you know, because they have a a couple of hours to to uh, tell a life story. So sometimes they combine things that it all happened. Like all the things happened. Most a couple of things that were fictionalized. Very nothing relevant was fictionalized. That would have changed the story. But a lot of times like, they collapsed like like three different characters. Well, like one person would was would, be, would would do the things that three people did, and the mm -hmm. time was crunched sometimes together. But the individual acts were very, very accurate. In many cases, the real world stuff was more extreme. And there's one thing that I think was probably the big myth of the movie was that it, it, it missed the, it didn't, I don't think it actually depicted my, the slow descent into insanity. Yeah. 
And it was just, and, and, and I, I, I think they, listen, you know, I think it's such a great movie, but if there's one thing I think, like they, you know, in the first scene, I'm like, you know, up in the, um, in the, in the, when I'm lunch with Mark Adam, I'm like, you know, can't we make our clients money too? I'm like, there's, you know, naive, wet behind the ears, um, you know, altruistic person that wants to make my clients money. He goes, no. In the next scene, I'm like, in a strip club, going to go, right? And, and in reality, that, that descent into, you know, into insanity took a lot years of slow incremental steps where i found myself doing things that's what i never do and, and so forth so that's the one thing i think but uh, you know other than that and you know some scenes with my wife where i got violent and punched her that never happened and mm-hmm. but leo asked leo, leo asked me for permission to do that you know and i was like yeah i understand it serves and Neil. so you know there's some, some stuff like that but all in all i mean let's you know what can i say i leo dicaprio you know arguably the greatest actor of our generation Play me, directed by arguably the greatest director of my generation, and they made a masterpiece that is something that became part of the social fabric of society. So what can I say? Yeah. I'm not look at you. One takeaway is for me is like, why lose? <laughs> why would uh, you know back then? Why was that the thing to go to? They're just awesome. I mean, they're so great. I mean, thank God they're illegal. I can't get them. They're too good. You know, they're really good. Back then, they were everyone's drug of choice. Yeah, I mean, I, again, uh, just a general question. Like, you know, back then, you had the adrenaline rush of, you know, just making all those sales on Wall Street mixed with the insane amount of drugs that you were doing. What now that you don't do drugs, what is you know, quote unquote, your, your drug that gives you that adrenaline rush. I think, listen, I think the one thing that I have today that I, I never had back then was, you know, I can't walk down the street for more than a block without a few people coming up to me. And typically about a third of them will come right out and say, you changed my life. You know, you really helped me you you know the books that you wrote the uh, the trainings that you give and uh, just the sheer comeback that you made you know the issues in my own life a whole lot which is, is worth to me all the money in the world and then also i also make a lot of money doing it so it's like a win-win so i love what i do it helps people out and i get to, i do do these very large events around the world so i get that up of being in front of thousands and tens of thousands of people so i really get all of that and the drugs frankly honestly I, I, when I look back on my life, I don't have this romantic notion. Oh my God, I wish I still did drugs. I don't look back at it like that. I look back and say the drugs diminished all those experiences, didn't didn't elevate them and accentuate them. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. And, and just a couple of last questions here. Big comedy fan. What was it like when you found out like your cellmate was the guy from the Up in Smoke movies? That was probably the most amazing thing because if it wasn't for Tommy Chang, I would have never written this book and the movie would have never gotten made because it was Tommy that recommended it, pushed me, kept me inspired. So Tommy really was the one and also helped me in the early days of critiquing my writing. And so I really, I've, I've always been very thankful of Tommy publicly he's a, he's a wonderful guy so that was amazing and 
he made it interesting. And yeah, so it was a great experience. Yeah. At what point did he like encourage when would it be you would just tell him these stories and he said, you know, you should really write it down or what was the sort of the process? Well, so at night, you know, not a lot to do in jail. So like, you know, every night, you know, you know, when I first got when I first got there, they just, he was already there and mm-hmm. um, and they they put, just put us together in one cell because we were both famous. So I guess that's I, I assume that's why they did it. because It was too random. They put us both in the same cell together. Right. So we weren't in the same prison. We were in the same cell together. We yeah. shared a bunk together. Right. And, you know, there's not a lot to do at nighttime, but tell stories. And I would tell him stories and he'd be literally rolling on the floor laughing and he'd tell me stories and I'm laughing. Right. And then and then finally, on like, I think it was a third or fourth night. He goes, you know, honestly, I thought you were making this shit up. But my wife Googled you. And it's all true. I, I can't believe this stuff is actually true. Goes, you have to write a book. I'm like, why? He goes, your life's insane. Goes, I'm like, you really think my, I didn't think my life was crazy. He goes, listen, I'm Tommy John. <laughs> I think my life is crazy. And, and, and I was like, really? You're right. Because you know what? It's your life. You don't think it's crazy because you got there slowly. And that's the point I made about these incremental steps where, you know, you, you start to, you almost, it's like, you know, dipped in your tone of hot bathtub. At first, you're like, oh my God, it's so hot. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're submerged under the water and it feels just fine because you got used to it. That's how you go about life when you're doing stuff like that. Crazy. You suddenly, you know, get to that spot at the end, but you got there so slowly, you don't think it's crazy. So he was the one that inspired me to do it. And that's how it all began. Well, and, and this, um, I read, did you like initially the story, like the first 130 pages and then restart writing the book? I, I did that probably four times. So, I mean, you know, I find writing to be very difficult. Um, I'm not a natural writer. Some people are. I just had a, a Ben Mezrak on my podcast today. He's a brilliant writer. And he's telling me he writes books in 60 days. I'm like, holy fuck. I'm like, it takes me a year. So, I mean, I'm very critical. I, I probably, um, I, 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 my strategy is probably really stupid. And I self-edit as I write versus just writing and then editing after. So I end up typically writing and then, tearing it up and writing and tearing it up and and I did get to about page 130 in jail and then I just said ah it's not good enough and I ripped it up and then um someone actually sent it back to me someone actually took the pages and kept on and then many years later I got an email I got like a, a envelope with my ripped my pages they saved from jail so I have them ah that that would make a NFT project right there <laughs> I know I know well, the I know. fans of the, of the pages I know, I know, I know. I have all those things. I think there's going to be a real, in the very short term, the time will be right. But, but frankly, I just thought that for me, this NFT with David Yarrow, to me, it just seemed like such a perfect way to enter the market. And I, and I honestly thought that this platform, Super Rare, was the perfect vehicle to enter the market with. I really, I, I, really, I think that the picture itself has got so much intrinsic value and will hold up very well. I think it will appreciate, and who knows what happens, but I think it's going to do really well. And, and, and when you combine that with the utility that David and I have created and all the money going to, it's actually going to Leo's charity, by the way. We got Leo involved in this. I'm going to put in like the Leo's charity. So it's, I think it's really a special project. I'm trying to use the phone. Yeah, and just uh, two last questions. So what, what, what are your takeaways from, you know, your redemption story that, you could re- apply to, you know, say the NFT world, you know, any kind of, you know, philosophical advice. Well, one, one thing is that, you know, no matter where you are in life, 
you know, how, how low you've fallen or you think you've fallen in business and personal relationships and love. You know, you can always come back as long as you're willing to put one foot in front of the other and also learn whatever you have to learn, special skills you need. It's never too late to reinvent yourself. And, and people love people that do that. I, I think what people don't respect is people who don't give it a whirl when they're down. That then, yeah, then you end up you know, becoming your mistakes of your past versus learning from the mistakes of your past. And that's, you know, that's a fundamental belief I have that I've taught people around the world is you're not the mistakes of your past. You're the resources and they're the capabilities that you glean from your past. Like every time you fail or do something wrong, it makes you stronger if you're willing to learn and grow from that versus living in the past and dwelling in the past and being paralyzed by the past. Well, that's how you become your past and maintain a losing attitude and open the die a loser. And I, I think it's a huge lesson in my life. That's number one. And number two, with the NFTs is that good things often take time. And that's why I'm in a rush into the market. I could have dropped this eight months ago. We've been very, very careful, very deliberate. And I think that if you do that and you really try, I think the idea is to try to give value to people and then make money because you gave value versus just trying to make money. Like the first thing, you know, I think about when I'm trying to make money is not how do I make money? It's how do I give people value? How do I help solve the problem or create something that people really want? And then I'll worry about making money on it after. The money will be easy to make as a result of the value I created. And that's the strategy I've used. I think people should look at that when they're doing their own NFTs is to make sure that, you know, when you're doing it, don't just look at it as a get rich quick scheme. Look at it as just, just to, to really build the community to create stuff that people really like and, and you trust me, you'll make 10 times is more money like that and as you would if you try to do the quick bam you know wham bam thank you man that's like that that's that's a short-term approach mm-hmm. and i think will badly for you so uh, i think the i think there's so much opportunity in nfts i really do i i believe that that in the next five to ten years you're going to see just fortunes made in this space and it's like when you were laying the railroad track in the 1800s, no one really knew what was going to pop up in every town, but you knew the land was valuable. You knew that there was going to be all the things, the goods and services that were needed in the old world, we needed in the new world and on the frontier. And I think that's where the opportunities lie. So I think you're best off to, to not try to guess exactly what's going to happen, but to play it wide, you know, take, make your, you know, diversify your bets, but be part of this. Don't let it, you know, you're in a generation or two or three that something there's a realignment of, of finances, of, of how value is tracked and how it's transferred. This is a brave new world. I think people should be a part of it. Sure, sure. Sounds very good. And, and just one last question. This is just like a general Wall Street uh, 1990s sort of question. Another project I'm working on, uh, we're doing this documentary on this guy from East Germany. Um, he was a Stasi agent, and then he turned double spy. And he got sent to the United States by the CIA with a new identity, went to college in uh, St. Louis, and then he became like a real Wall Street fat cat in like the 90s and worked for Goldman. So just general question, do you think is there a correlation to being a very successful Stasi agent and successful on Wall Street? Like I'm talking about like job skill set. I think the sample size is too too small to create any meaningful correlations, but I think that, you know, clearly someone that can be living the life of uh, you know, a double agent 
possesses some very strong communication skills and has a strong mental attitude. So I think those things, whether they come from being a Stasi agent or anything else, are, are attributes that will create success in whatever you do, in Wall Street, in Main Street, and anywhere in between. So I think that's probably the better lesson is that someone that possesses those skill sets can succeed at anything. <laughs> there you go. Jordan, thank you so much for the great conversation. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good luck. Take care, buddy. Okay, take care. Thanks. Everyone else has left the call. And that wraps up our episode on the history of the Wolf of Wall Street. Thank you for tuning in. And also remember, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101. And until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone! Excuse me! Comedy History 101.